Well, tonight we, we start a new series, and you could call it a season. This is, yes, a new series of messages, but this also is marking a new season in the life of Eternal City Church. Uh, we have been thinking in new ways. We have been planning in new ways. We have been strategizing through prayer and through much thinking and good counsel in new ways than we ever have before. And as you know, the building is no longer a reality from a few weeks ago. If you haven't heard all that was behind that, I encourage you to go on eternalcity.org and listen to the message entitled Psalm 127, 1 and 2, and you can hear all about that. But we are now going to begin a series called, Do You Love the Church? Do you love the church? And we are going to include in that, at the end of the series, what we had planned on prior. And if you remember, we talked about doing a series on the ugliness of sin in a fallen world. Racism, social injustice, police brutality, abortion, um, poverty, the, the ugliness of the world. And we will, we will do that. But it seemed to the leadership more crucial at this moment in our history that we talk about the church and we talk about your commitment and your love for this local body called Eternal City Church. And so that's why we're going to, yes, do that previously publicly stated sermon series, but we're going to add it to the back end of this series. So it'll be two series in one, the church's response to the brokenness in a fallen world. Okay, so our main text tonight is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You probably know it well. Uh, it's on the body. And let's, let's begin. Three simple points. You are the church, barriers to committing to the church, and God's eternal plan was always the church. Now, most people don't think of themselves as consumers. Do you know what consumerism is? Consumerism is the protection or the promotion of the interests of the consumer. And so if you think of yourself as a consumer, you exist to consume. And all other things exist for your consumption. Sadly, including other people. Sadly, including um, your kids. Sadly, including your spouse. Sadly, including the church. All things exist for your consumption. Now, you might not have thought about yourself in that way, but it's the cultural air that we breathe. As you are bombarded by advertisements, as you drive down the road, as you go through your Facebook account, as you do a web search, as you are in the movie theater, as you watch TV, I mean, you are just continually bombarded by consumption. Someone wants you to consume. And so, in a sense, you have been subliminally discipled into a consumer. Now, how many of you think of yourself as a consumer? Let's see, any hands? Okay, one, two, three. Okay, more, more than I thought. 
We want to approach the church in a non-consumer way. Most people approach church as a consumer. If this fits what I'm looking for, if they have the right programs, if I like the people, if consume, 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 it's all about me. It's not about Jesus and it's not about others, which is the two greatest commands. Now, there are marks of a good church, and we will address those as the, ser- as the series moves forward. But this is going to be a series that asks you to look biblically and personally at the church. And where are you at with the church? So, you are the church. This kind of goes without saying, but let's say it. The church is not a building. We say, hey, we're going to church tonight. Kind of. We're going to a church building to gather with the church. That's more accurate. But we know what we mean when we say, hey, we're going to church tonight. Or, hey, did you go to church last night? Biblically, though, this is a church building, and we are the church, the people. Okay? Now, there's church gathered, which is this, and there's church scattered, which is the church leaves the building, and you're still the church because the church is more than a building. It's more than a Sunday hour, hour and a half gathering. It's a people that God has called from darkness to light, and he is forming a community or, in Corinthians 12, a body. And so we, Eternal City, is not a building, it's not a 501c3, it's not a website, it's not a library of sermons, it's not a missional statement, it's not a set of core commitments, it's not our discipleship programs and processes. You are the church. Do you see yourself that way? When you think of Eternal City Church, do you think, that's me, that's Tyree, that's Eddie, that's Megan and Jackie and You see, we we need reprogrammed because when we think of the church, we think of all that first category. We don't think of people that we love made in God's image who God loves enough to send his son to die for. So listen to this. The places we gather, the organizational structures, the website, the sermon libraries, the mission statement, the core commitments, the discipleship programs and processes all serve This local body made up of people, the people of God, to glorify God. All the things we think of as the church are actually to serve the church, you and me. And God has, believe it or not, listen to this, this might be paradigm shifting. God has ordained and set up the church, the local church, as the main means of your maturing in Christ. You you thought it was your new systematic theology book. You thought it was your new podcast. You thought it was your whatever. The local church is God's plan for your growth. We are the church. Now, Spurgeon helps us. Listen to Spurgeon. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. Amen. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. The moment I did join it, 
If I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would have been a perfect church. It would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place to us. The point Spurgeon's making is a point that you know. There is no such thing as a perfect church. And if there was, as soon as you walked through the door, you just ruined it. Same with me. Because the church is more like a hospital for broken and sick people than it is for a museum for us to go and look at polished works of arts called Christians. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so when we come into the church, who should we expect to find? Sinners. And we, as the church, can be honest about our sin. We don't have to hide in a closet and pretend like we got it all together. We don't have to hide and pretend like we're squeaking clean, freshly armor all. No. We're broken, messed up, stumbling, sometimes crawling people. But you know what? Jesus died for us, and we're the church. And I just broke the clicker. Sorry. I need this, so i got to put it back together. <laughs> see, I told you the church is imperfect. Let's see if it works. No, no. Give me one second. Talk amongst yourself, but not loudly. All right, let's try it again. Ready? Boom. All right. All right, we're back in business. Stop talking amongst yourself. Thank you. Okay. One of the pictures in the Bible of the church is this image, a body. I, I think it is such a helpful picture for us because we all have a body. We get it. It's a very clear, it's a very visible, look around, see your fellow neighbor's bodies. Paul, the apostle, likens the church to a body. And more specifically, the local church as a body because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is writing to a local church. And he employs this metaphor in a series on spiritual gifts. Now, we're not going to talk about the spiritual gifts right now. We will in weeks to come. But right now, let's think about the church as a body rather than anything else. So, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 27. We'll start in 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. That's simple enough. The body, the church, is one, and there's many members in one church, one local church. Though many, there's still one body. So it is with Christ. So Christ has a universal body. It's called the universal church. That would be comprised of all believers at a place and time globally. Now, if you want to get real large, it's all of God's people throughout redemptive history. The entire lump of them, from Abraham and David to Spurgeon to us. I think Adam and Eve are in there. Okay. The church, his people, his called out ones, his 
ones that he set his saving love upon. But for our purposes, we are the local church, his body, a local expression. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, keep in mind here the all and the one. All of us, one, one body. Okay, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, there's controversy surrounding this verse. And if you read the Bible at all or you're familiar with all the debates that surround this verse, let's touch it for just a minute. But I don't want to spend too much time here because it's not the focus. So the, the question in debate here is, what does it mean for in one spirit we're all baptized into one body and made to drink of one spirit? Does that mean that there's a second baptism of the Holy Spirit after you come to Christ and then it propels you into this deeper life with God and you receive spiritual gifts that you didn't have before and now you're on fire for Christ when before you weren't and now you're hot when you were cold before and much, much controversy surrounds this verse. You probably know it well. Let's think about that for just a second. Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist, pointing to Jesus, says this. Listen, I baptize you with water, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is an image of judgment. Fire is an image of purification in the scriptures. So Jesus is going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, the question I would like to ask is, when do you get the Holy Spirit? When do you get the Holy Spirit? Is it, is it a time after your conversion, after your being born again? Is it at the moment of conversion? Is it, when is it? Well, the Bible's really clear. We don't have to guess or wonder. In fact, Romans 8, 9 says this. You, however, Roman Christians, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. So there's people who are in the flesh and there's people who are in the spirit. Listen to this. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, if you have the spirit of God, if he dwells in you, you're in the spirit. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's very clear. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a part of the body of Christ. You're not. So if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6 says this. There is one body, one body of Christ. There is one Spirit, capital S, one Holy Spirit. Now listen to this. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, that would be forgiveness of sins, eternal life, new heavens, new earth, new body, full restoration, one hope. One Lord, Jesus, one faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, this points to one baptism. One baptism. Now, the question then we have to ask about this text is, is it one water baptism like last week in the river? Or is he talking about one baptism that actually immerses you into the body of Christ? Well, if you remember, and you were there last week, there is a spiritual baptizing into the body of Christ. It's at the moment you are converted. 
made alive from being spiritually dead. And at that moment, you are baptized into the body of Christ. Water baptism is a physical outward picture of that spiritual inward reality. Just like the elements of communion, the bread and the juice or the wine, if you're of that tradition, it's a symbol of the real broken body and bloodshed of Jesus. Well, in the same way, water baptism is a symbol of the real you have been put to death with Jesus, you're alive with Jesus, and now you're in Christ. You're united to him. It's a picture. And so the one baptism is a one baptism into the body of Christ. John MacArthur helpfully says this, there cannot be any believer who has not been spirit baptized, nor can there be more than one spirit baptism. The whole point of this verse right here and this section is unity in the body of Christ. And if that's what Paul is arguing for, unity, then to say there's multiple baptisms doesn't unify, it sets apart. It's like Eddie's been baptized, what about you? That's not unity. No, Paul's arguing for here, one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. If he's arguing for multiple baptisms of the spirit, that doesn't unify that, in John MacArthur's words, convolutes. It, it makes it more confusing. It makes his argument difficult to follow. It doesn't fit. There's one baptism. One. Now, believers all have been spirit baptized and thus are all in one body. We are united. Okay, so here's the point. You... Christian are not an individual Christian on your own, disconnected. Whether you like it or not, you're a part of the body of Christ. The question is, are you living out that reality in practice, or are you going about just like the rest of your neighbors and your family as an individual Christian, trying to grow on your own, trying to minister on your own, trying to do everything on your own rather than being connected to the body, which you are a part of, whether you like it or not. It's how God set it up to be. That's the question. So let's look at the rest of the passage. Verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Hope you got good eyesight. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So, again, he's talking spiritual gifts here. And so if Jamal says, well, I don't got the teaching gift that Eddie has, and so I'm not a part of the body, no, that doesn't fly. Just like your ear is to serve the whole body the same way your feet serve the entire body. They're different. But they both serve the body in different ways. But they're both a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not the eye, I do not belong to the body. Well, that would, uh, that would not make it any less a part of the body. His argument now is, well, if, if you say, well, I'm not the preacher up front. I'm not the guy expositing the text. I'm just helping in the kids' ministry. Well, then I'm not a part of the body. No, no you are. You're a part of the body just the same with different roles, different functions. Verse 17, if the whole body... Were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? 
But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, listen to this, as he chooses. Who gets to choose? He does. God is the one who distributes his gifts, his roles. I want you to do this. This is how I made you. This is how I want you to serve the body. I made you an ear. I made you a foot. I made you a finger. And because you're not anyone else doesn't make you any less a part of the body. Let's keep going. Verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Like if we we were all teachers, who would serve? We'd have no tech people. We'd have no nursery workers. We'd have no one to teach the children. We'd have... As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Okay, let's stop. This is where you come in. If you're a part of this local church, this local church needs you. We need you. Okay? That means that you are not if you call this your church home, to come in on a Sunday and consume and listen to a message, sing a few songs, though by iTunes, uh, and, and leave, and then show up again next week for an hour. That's not the body. That's, what, if what if your sense of taste worked for one hour on Sunday? That'd be horrible. Right? I mean, your your tongue is working all the time, and praise God, because God made a lot of food to taste really good. What if your sense of hearing only worked for a few hours on Sunday? Well, that'd be horrible, especially if you were like one of those people who takes complaints at the bank, online calling center. You can only work a couple hours a week. point is, this local body needs you, and we need you more than just to fill a seat on Sunday. God has designed you in a specific way, like no one else, to serve in whatever local church you find yourself. And if you find yourself committed to this local church, we need you, and it's not an accident that you're here. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God determines the exact times and places where men should live? Acts 17. Do you believe that God places individual Christians in a local body so they can be a part of that body to serve and care for and to be served and be cared for mutually? That's the biblical model. On the contrary, verse 22, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You know what indispensable means? It means you cannot do without it. Prime example, how many of you have ever hurt your toe badly. You know what that's like? All of a sudden, you're like, you are dysfunctional. I mean, you can't even lay in bed with the sheets on your feet. You know what I'm talking about? Your little toe gets no thought. Your big toe gets no thought until it gets smashed by a cinder block. And all of a sudden, your big toe is indispensable. Isn't it? You know exactly what I'm doing. Or how, how about your voice? 
Like, we use our voice every day, all the time, and we never give it a thought until it's gone. And then all of a sudden, you're trying to do sign language, and you'll get a fool, and you got to point and play charades. The point is, the parts of the body that seem less important are indispensable. And we think about the stomach and the tongue a lot. Because we're always talking and we're always hungry. Okay. We need you. Okay, you might, you might be thinking to yourself, and I've heard some of you say this, I, I don't have much to offer. You are enough. <laughs> we don't need superstars. We need you. Don't separate yourself from what you do. You're not what you do. You're not the sum total of your talents. You're not the sum totals of your spiritual gifts. Do you realize that? You're more than your capacities. You're an image bearer of God, and you're indispensable to His body wherever you find yourself, whatever local body you're connected to. So don't think to yourself, I got nothing to offer. God hasn't given me these spectacular gifts. Maybe you have spiritual gift envy. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe you're like, well, why can't I be like so-and-so? Or so-and-so can talk to anybody about this. Or so-and-so, or maybe you have personality envy. Maybe you're like, well, I'm not like her. I, I can't go and just talk to anybody at any time. Well, God made you to be you. And yes, there's some sinful parts of you that need to grow up, no doubt. No doubt. But you're more than who you are right now. The local body exists to help you grow, and you exist to help the local body grow. Okay, this is an interesting part here of the passage. Those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow with greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Now, this is what we would call kids. We'd say to kids, those are your private parts. Like, stop touching that, right? If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's your private parts. And what do we do with that? We treat it with greater modesty. We cover up prayerfully. We, we treat it more special because of it's unpresentableness. Now, now, here's what that means spiritually. There are massive things that go on behind the scenes that you have no idea about. You just don't see the prayers that go out for this church. You don't see the people that give. We don't just, you know, broadcast that stuff. You don't see the meetings that happen that are not talked about. You don't see the countless things that have to happen for this church to move forward. And it's treated with greater modesty, even though it's not outwardly seen. Oftentimes, we treat people the way the world treats people. The greater the capacity, the greater talents, the greater upfrontness and visibility that people have, the better we treat them. Meanwhile, this biblical pattern is, no, there are things that you'll never see that get treated with special modesty, more attention. And God sees it that way, even if you don't. So there are things that go on that you'll never know about till eternity. You'll never know. And God will make it known one day and there will be great reward. But we need you. Even if your gifts aren't out front and very visible. 
We need you. Verse 25. I'm sorry, let's finish verse 24. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. That there may be, here's the reason. So the that there may be, we're giving the reason for why God does this. That there may be, this is why. That there may be no division in the body. So we never want the foot to be at war with the brain. Because the brain's saying, walk that way, and the foot's saying, nope. And all of a sudden, you're tripping and falling. We don't want no division between the brain and the hand that's going to pick up your drink. Because you're going to pick up the drink and all of a sudden you miss it and knock it over. No division in the body. Did you re- do you realize that God is actually very concerned that a local church be unified? Amen. You ever consider that? He wants us to be on the same page. And it's not that difficult. That, now that doesn't mean that we all have to agree on all the finer points of doctrine. That's not what that means. It means that I'm for you and you're for me and that goes for everybody. We love and serve one another even if there's disagreements, even if there's personality clashes, even if I get on your nerves or you get on my nerves. You're part of my body and you're part of the body of Christ. We're just a different body part. And we need, listen, as a church to begin to function more like a body and less like consumers, individualistic consumers. Would you guys agree with that? You'll see the benefit of it, I hope, in a moment. But let's just keep going. If one member suffers, all suffer together. That's the point earlier about the toe. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This means that when someone's hurting, the the rest of the body steps in to take care. Do you ever notice that you get tired after you eat lunch? Like some, I know Eric told me he don't even eat lunch because he don't want to get tired. How many of you, after lunch, all of a sudden you're like, and you just, you know why that is? Why? Because the digestive process takes a lot of energy to go through. Yes. So your body is now focusing on digesting that food, and all of a sudden there's less energy for the rest of the body. So you're like, man, I just really need a nap. The point is, listen, when a part of the body is hurting, the rest of the body should divert its attention to that place to help, to be there, to step in. And if one is honored, listen, we're rejoicing. We're not envying. We're not celebrating that something good went for Eddie. Something awesome happened to Eddie. Something always happens. Something awesome to Eddie. Can't stand Eddie. That's envy. That's ugly. When something awesome happens to Eddie, we get to enter into that rejoicing and your joy goes up. So you know you're an envious person. Listen, if when something good happens to someone else and all of a sudden you're brought down by that, that's an envy sin and it actually is draining you. Sin destroys. It doesn't help. It's not good. So your mood went down because someone else's mood went up. What is that? Well, that's a decrease in your joy. This body metaphor here says, when something goes good for Tyree, my joy should be going up. 
And that goes for everybody. And so if you're envious, of course you're not going to rejoice when others have benefits or it's going well for them or there's a promotion or whatever. But that's sin. We don't want that. We, we want God to overcome our sin and to transform us more into the image of Christ. Why? Because it actually is for your good. Imagine if every time I heard or you heard something good about someone else, your joy level, your rejoicing increased. You'd be a pretty happy person. Instead, we say, must be nice. How many times have you said must be nice last week? Must be nice is a mark of envy, not rejoicing. Must be nice to be them and to get that and to go there and to be with him or her and envy. Not this, not rejoicing when one member is honored. Listen, that's where we want to go. This is good. This is good stuff. All right, let's go to barriers. Barriers to committing to the church. These are common barriers. Individualism. Um, again, this is American Western culture. You're an individual by nature of being however old you are in America. You're just an individual. Okay? We are taught to breathe individualism. Your freedom, your autonomy, your goals, your ambitions, your you, you. It's meism, it's meology. That's individualism. Here's the definition, though. It's helpful. The belief that the needs of each person are more important than the needs of the whole or the group. I'm important. Forget what's happening with them. The belief, here's a second, actions or attitudes of a person who does things without being concerned about what other people will think. Now, that's not in a sinful way, like the fear of man. That's just, I don't care about you. I don't care how this affects you. I'm going to do it anyway. That's individualism. It's the individual, the autonomous person exists for their own good, for their own happiness, for their own fulfillment. And so your job is to make that happen. That's American culture. You're the most important person in the world. As one pastor said, I love me some me. Self-actualization, many of you us have never even heard that, but listen, you're trying to self-actualize every day. Listen to what it is. The realization or fulfillment of one's talents and potentials, especially considered as a drive or a need present in everyone. Isn't this what's fed to us from the time we're in kindergarten? Be all you can be. Self-actualize. Maximize your gifts and talents and abilities. Not for the good of others, but for your good and your glory and your benefit and your bank account and you, you, you. That's what we're fed since kindergarten. Am I right or am I wrong? Self-actualization. Individualism. Here's one more. Self-fulfillment. Self-fulfillment is... The act or act of fulfilling one's own ambitions, desires, etc. through one's own efforts. Again, it's the whole world curved in to benefit me. And if I benefit you at all, there better be some kind of payback. Because really, this is to benefit me. See how this works? But that's how the world works, doesn't it? 
That's the way your job works. That's the way maybe you treat your kids or your spouse or your friends or your church. I mean, this is, we do this without even thinking about it. Yet, in God's economy, this, is, this should not be. How do I know this? Well, because Philippians 2.4 makes it really clear. Listen to this. Let each of you, you listening? Let each of you, church in Philippi, look not to his own interests, but also the interest of others. So, yes, we're very self-interested, but Paul exhorts us through this letter to the Philippians to be interested in others. To be interested in others. When the body draws attention to itself, it's usually because it's hurting. And again, that's to my earlier point. We don't think about our voice unless it's missing. We don't think about our big toe unless it's hurting. If you slam your finger with a hammer, all of a sudden you notice your finger when before it was just functioning properly. And so if you're, listen to me, if you're constantly drawing attention to you, that means there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And isn't it interesting that we're fed from the time we're little kids to do this? There's something wrong with the world. It's broken. We are fed from the time we're little children to be small g gods and that the universe revolves around us like our planets revolve around the sun. You are the most important person in the universe. Do you believe that? <laughs> you can even hear some evangelists saying stuff like that. It's like, Oh, no, 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 no. God is the most important person in the universe. Here's the point. We exist to love God. That's moving out of self. Luther's famous definition of sin is so good. It's, it's the self-curved inward. That's the definition of sin. All things I do are for the benefit of me. Self-curved inward, Latin incurvitus say. And in the greatest command, it's the self-moving outward. It's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's your whole being not curved in on you, but rather moving out towards God. And the second is like it, to have the whole self move out towards loving others. To the point of self-sacrifice. That's where joy can be found. And even in me saying that, you're like, man, that sounds like self-sacrifice. That's exactly what it sounds like. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. He sacrificed himself for our good so that we might have true joy forever. And listen, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was the joy that was set before him that took him to the cross well it was that he would have a body a people to be with forever and even within the trinity there's this self-giving this otherness that is the focus and there's maximum joy the only reason there is joy in the universe is because it comes from god first 
The reason that you are joy-seeking is because God is a joy-giving God. And you've been lied to by the God of this world, as Shailen says, the prince of the power of the airwaves. You've been told through the airwaves into your earlobes that it's all about you, and that's the road to joy and happiness. But if God created the universe to work in the way he designed it, then the self looking away from self to God and to others is actually the road to joy. It's just, do you believe that? It's faith that says, I believe that enough to step into it. And as you step into it, the experience comes. But as we analyze it as an idea, especially if you have the world's philosophy running through your thoughts and mind every day, that sounds crazy. Me sacrifice me for others? What benefit is that to me? <laughs> None. Except that you actually might find joy, what you've been looking for in all of the self-actualization, all of the self-fulfillment, all of the me-ism, and it hasn't worked. Has it? Has it worked? Are you joyful? Are you happy? Are you fulfilled? Are you... No, you're not. I know you're not. Because it can't work. It's impossible. C.S. Lewis is brilliant, and I'm going to help you as he has helped me. This is the other focusness that I'm talking about, okay? So listen closely. This is from his book, The Four Loves. A fantastic book if you've never read it. But as some of you know, C.S. Lewis, author of The Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity and you know, The Great Divorce, massive works. One of them is The Four Loves. He was in a group of writers, a, a community, called the Inklings. The Inklings met in a pub in Oxford, England, and they, yes, drank beer while they discussed their writings before they were published. So J.R.R. Tolkien was one of them, best friend of C.S. Lewis. So imagine J.R.R. Tolkien standing up and reading The Hobbit before it ever came out while drinking a pint of, I'm sure, Guinness, because it's Oxford, England, right? It's close to Ireland. And so over a frothy mug of brew, Frodo and Sam are publicly read as the Lord of the Rings is being pre-published, loudly exclaimed. And C.S. Lewis reads the Chronicles of Narnia before it ever got into a little child's hands. Okay, so one, one of those guys, his name was Charles Williams. I set that up for this reason. I'm going to read you this quote. So Charles Williams was an inkling. J.R. Tolkien was an inkling. His name was Ronald. First name. Here we go. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. Hmm. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, Charles Williams, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charline, Charline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. 
Two friends delight to be joined by a third, and three by a four, if the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend. So here's the point. We think, if I could have so-and-so all to myself, meanwhile, the truth is, as community gathers, now we're talking about the church here, more of that individual comes out. As the body interacts with each other, so for example, let's say I have a meeting with Eddie and it's just me. Well, it's going to go a certain way and I'm going to see a certain side of Eddie. But add Tyree to the mix and Eddie gets a little weirder. And I like that. I like the weirdness. It don't come out with me. I'm too serious. And all of a sudden we're talking about Thor and Captain America and, and I'm like, I'm hammering scripture and theology and missional planning and and then get Jackie Walker in the mix. And I'm not even going to say what happens next. I'm kidding. <laughs> but the point is, we get to see more of Eddie as more community comes into contact with Eddie. Yet, from the world's perspective, if I could just have you all to myself, then I have more of you. But that's not the truth. That's a lie. And so it goes with the church. The more we act as the body, the more joy there is to be had. Listen, the less you interact with the body, your local body, the more frustrated you're going to be, the less growth you're going to experience, the less discipleship you're going to be involved in and being discipled. You're going to be poorly growing. Yet the more... And I know some of, the, some of the objections are coming to your mind right now. I can't stand so-and-so. I hate it when I'm around them. You know what God's doing in that? He's showing your sin. Because it's something in you that can't stand them. They are who they are. If that thing in you wasn't there, you might actually be able to love them, which is actually what you're commanded to do. And so God even uses the annoyance and the quirkiness and the sins of others to bring out your sins so that you might see it now and repent of it and be transformed more into the image of Christ. So God uses the church in a positive way for you to be poured into and for you to pour into others, but he also uses the church in a way where you're like, I can't even be around that person. Well, that's a problem in you. That needs to be dealt with and addressed. And if that's allowed to stay there, that's going to get worse, not better. No sin stays neutral. You remember what Owen said, be killing sin or what? Sin will be killing you. It's one or the other. It's not, sin doesn't lay there and take a nap. It's being killed and dying or it's getting worse and getting stronger. Which one is it? And sometimes, often, God doesn't reveal all of our sin to us. He lets it come out slowly. And sometimes you get around certain people that bring out some ugly in you. And that's actually not a bad thing because now you see it. They're like mirrors. And so my point is, we tend to naturally avoid people who we either don't like or they rub us the wrong way or it's awkward and all this, you know. Listen, in God's church, it should not be. We're commanded to love, and then we have to depend on the power to love that's not in us. How many of you have entered into situations where you're like, I cannot do this? 
You've said that to yourself. And all of a sudden, you are forced to rely on the power of God to step into something that you otherwise could not do. And then all of a sudden, the power comes as you take the step. You know what I'm talking about? I hope that you experience that often because God is often calling us not to what we can handle, but rather to what we have to depend on Him for. God is not about your comfort, unfortunately, and I so wish He was. Chris, I'm all about your comfort, man. I'm just, I exist for your comfort. Thank you, Jesus. I love you. (laughs) Meanwhile, meanwhile, you know, God is about the business of stretching you and pushing you and breaking you in a good way. And you find him near in those moments, don't you? Nearer than he was when all was well. Don't run from those moments, guys. Don't run from the church. God is up to something. If this is his means for your growth and for you to aid in others' growth, don't run from it. Step into it. Okay, it's 618. I have a lot more, but I'm going to have to like close this one down and part two it next week because I think it's about that time.